0: everyone. It's time for the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacy Higginbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Tofel, And we have a great show for you today. First off, we should say that... Hey, welcome back, Kevin.
1: Hey, good to be back.
0: I don't know. Rye, Rye gave you a, a run for your money.
1: I last heard that. Week. I heard that.
0: So first off, Kevin's back today, and we have awesome news. We're going to be talking about a massive acquisition that Intel just made. We're going to talk about... Some cool uses for lidar, Ring's security woes, Roomba getting an Echo integration, an IoT design manifesto I learned about at South by Southwest, and a new round of funding for a big IoT platform. We've also got some other smaller bits of news. You're going to enjoy it, and I still can't get my smart things and Lutron integration to work. Hoi,
1: mm-hmm. boo.
0: We'll have a message from our sponsor, Samsung. And our guest this week is Phoebe Wilkinson, who is with Hogan Lovells, a law firm, and she specializes in class action suits. And we talk about what the IOT is going to do for class action lawsuits and things like product liability and deceptive trade practices. She actually taught me a lot. (laughs) So before we get into all of this, let's get a message from another one of our sponsors, Wolf SSL. The world's top three automakers use Wolf SSL to secure their vehicles, and they aren't alone. Wolf SSL secures two billion connections across a multitude of IoT devices, including automotive, connected home, industrial, military, and medical devices. With the Mirai botnet and the growing threat of ransomware attacks on the Internet of Things, companies have to pay attention to security or risk litigation, bad PR, and their brand value. Securing the IoT is hard, but Wolf SSL has the experience and specialized expertise to help. Shouldn't you be using Wolf SSL? To find out more, visit wolfssl.com. And yes, you probably should be using Wolf SSL because as we learn later in today's show, security is a big part of risk management that companies need to be doing. Ah. <laughs> All right, Kevin. Stacy. Let's just get started with Intel's $15.3 billion acquisition of Mobileye. Ah! Yeah,
1: that's huge. Well, I mean, not as huge as other acquisitions Intel has made, but I, I did not see this one coming. And for those who are not familiar, uh, Mobileye is an Israeli-based company that started I think back in 1999 and their technology powers a large percentage of mm, I'll say I was going to say self-driving but I'll say autonomous vehicles Tesla was using them for quite a while if I recall correctly yeah and then I know other automakers are are also uh, using mobile eye for their Self-driving efforts, um, but yeah, $15.3 billion in all cash deal. I think it was $63, I want to say $0.54 cents per share, which was a 33% premium to the prior day closing price for Mobileye. That uses up a chunk of their short-term cash. Stacey, you and I were looking at Intel's um, recent balance sheet just before the show. I mean, it's, it's almost like all of it.
0: <laughs> yeah. They had about, I think it was 17.1 billion in short-term or cash and in short-term investments. That's right. not to say they can't raise more cash. They can go to mm-hmm. the bond market. They could probably sell a lot more chips, but it's a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. it's tied to, like it's actually almost as big as their recent acquisition of Altera, which was about two years ago that they announced the deal. I think it closed last year. And this was Intel spending $16.7 billion Mm. on a company that makes programmable chips. So Mm. Altera was an FPGA company. So you guys might be looking at this and going, hey, Intel has just bought Mobileye, so computer vision for cars. Then they also bought a company called Movidius, which was computer vision on battery-powered devices. Mm -hmm. And prior to that, they bought Nirvana Systems, which was all about AI, and they're a company making an AI chip, but also an AI kind of software as a service layer, and then Altera. So what's happening here is Intel is really trying this time around to get ahead of where it thinks computing is going. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, they're spending a lot to get there, but I won't bet, again, I will never bet against Intel
2: because
0: they have money and they have know-how and... Brian Krasanich, the current CEO, is just like, for a long time, Intel was hobbled by its dedication to x86 architecture, which is its mm-hmm. computing architecture. And now they're like, you know what? That's in the past. We can use that for right. some things, but we got to, we got to get ahead.
1: And when you say hobbled, I mean, it was always a, for a large period of time, Intel was focusing on, on processing speed and power just at the time when we were looking at, chip efficiency, hence the rise of ARM architecture and mobile devices, which, sure, power is great, you know, performance and power are great, but you need to be efficient because everything's battery powered. So they kind of lost out in a large way on mobile so far.
0: And what's notable here is that with like mobilized chips, they've got their IQ, their chips are called the IQ. They're basically massive sub- supercomputing type power for doing computer vision, but at like three to five watts, mm-hmm. which is really, I mean, it's not like cell phone low, but it's definitely low for a big computer that's doing the kind of pro- power that
1: it's doing. Right. I mean, I, I think even Intel's atoms back at the time, my last used one was probably more like a five watt chip.
0: Yeah. So yeah. this is a big deal. I think that while yes intel is clearly getting into cars and in autonomous vehicles which is going to be a huge segment going forward mm-hmm. it's also just look at it as intel continuing to invest in lower power computer vision or even lower power architectures
1: right so and for scope of the of the potential here because goldman sachs has a projection for advanced driver assistance systems and autonomous vehicles they're saying they expect that market to grow from about 3 billion dollars in 2015 to 96 billion in 2025 and 290 billion in 2035. Granted, that's a far view out and a lot of things can change, but you can see why a $15 billion investment is chump change with the potential here.
0: Now, the question I have, hmm. Intel built its dominance on the fact that it had the x86 architecture license and the only other company that had it was AMD and it <laughs> kind of licensed that out as a, don't call me a monopoly kind of move. So right. Intel's now moving into markets where it's going to have to be competitive. It is mm-hmm. not the only purveyor of this ki- this type of silicon. So it will be really interesting to see how it plays when it doesn't own the IP.
1: Agreed, and it's funny because it's competing against the same folks that are. It's competing against the mobile market, and that is NVIDIA, Qualcomm, et cetera. So, it's not like it's competing against new players here. It's the same players, and you're right. This is a different environment for Intel to to try and succeed in.
0: So we'll see. In other exciting news about it's not really AAS. Kevin actually told me mm. something today that had me thinking. Oh my gosh! I have associated a technology called lidar with mm-hmm. Drive self-driving cars and only self-driving cars forever. But right. Kevin shared with me that when he was gone last week, he was doing actually something pretty cool with Lighter.
1: Yeah, and before I talk about it, I'll just do my standard disclosure that I do uh, work as a consultant for Google, and that's actually where I, I was last week. I was working for Google at our uh, Google Cloud Next event in San Francisco, and I was manning the booth for my area, which is um, Cloud Devices and Mobility. And we had in that booth, I didn't realize it at the time uh, or beforehand, we had a $25,000 LiDAR sensor there uh, made by Velodyne, which is the same type of sensor you see on the self-driving cars that, you know, it sits on top and spins around and so on and so forth. And yes, you're right. Most people associate that with self-driving cars for obvious reasons. But our group put together a prototype demo of using LiDAR to basically instrument a space. It could be any space. Some of the ideas that we had that we were sharing with customers were, hey, you could put this in a retail store, for example, and you can then get a almost like a physical heat map of your store showing where people are walking, you know, so you get traffic patterns where people are stopping and looking at products, et cetera. Or you can put it on a manufacturing line or in an office environment and say, oh, how many people are standing by the printer right now and why are they standing there? Is there a problem with the printer? You you can start gathering this type of space data and apply it in totally different ways from the self-driving vehicle application. So it's kind of interesting. I actually got to hold the thing too. It was kind of neat. I'm like, oh, I got a $25,000 laser in my hand. How Uh, big is it? Is it the
0: same size as what's on the top of the cars?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's the exact same sensor. Yeah, we just had it mounted up high. And, you know, people were walking by and it was tracking where they were walking and where they were standing. And and there's no personally identifiable information, which makes it a very interesting application. So as opposed to a camera, for example, in a store, you just see these wireframe stick figures, essentially, of people. So you can kind of get height, maybe, and, and whatnot, but you can't really see who's who. So I think that's kind of an advantage over a camera. And think about the data that you're capturing. I mean, it's tons and tons of data because these things take like 700,000 pieces of data per second because that thing spins around and there's multiple lasers in there. And um, it's just amazing the amount of data that it actually generates. So um, just an interesting number of applications that maybe people haven't thought of.
0: I like it. And it continues the LiDAR versus camera debate that we might be having. Until the end of time. Mm-hmm. Dun dun dun! All right. So, if you have a ring doorbell, pay attention because mm-hmm. oh oh ring! What a
1: what a mess this was.
0: <laughs> so this is this is a security challenge for the ring doorbell. What happened is somebody noticed that the network traffic from their ring doorbell was heading to a server in China, and they said, "Ha! Huh, why are some of my packets getting diverted to China?" Mm-hmm. And they went on Reddit. They posted it, which is exactly where I would go if I noticed some highly technical weird thing happening. Mm-hmm. And the response, actually, to their credit, the VP of Security at Ring answered, and he basically said that at the end of a live call or motion, they lose connectivity, and rather Occas- than, occasionally,
1: not occasionally, all the time,
0: rather than abandoning the entire call, they send the last few audio packets that are corrupted to a non-routable address on a protocol that no one uses. Okay. Hmm. So Hmm. the plan is that they're going to update the firmware. So this doesn't happen. And he he talks a little bit more about why they're doing that kind of architecture design. What I don't think they talk about, and what I imagine is also taking place here, is Ring uses a camera from China. Ring does not build its own camera. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if this is something that was basically part of the camera architecture, and they just were like, eh, Don't mess with it. We'll just leave that as it is. We're not going to update that.
1: Mm -hmm. That could be. That could be. It's interesting to me, and and I hope we post the link to this conversation in the show notes because because this actually the whole conversation went on a lot longer than we have time to cover. There was a lot of a lot of
0: education about like
1: UDP (laughs) and yeah packet right. So long story short, this conversation went back and forth. This was a technical user going back and forth with the VP of security at Ring and was explaining this. And basically, he kept saying, are you trolling me with these answers? This doesn't make sense. And he started explaining why. And it's a really good conversation. And I'm glad this person knew what he was talking about. And I'm doubly glad that Ring has finally said, yeah, we're going to update the firmware so this no longer happens.
0: Yeah. The point here is, when you are building connected devices, you are building on top of infrastructure that is already in place. And mm-hmm. you need to evaluate every piece of infrastructure coming in to create your product, which is ridiculously hard. It um, is. Or we need to come up with some like unified certification layers or levels for each layer of kind of a product stack. And, you know, I understand how this happens. If you're sourcing, you know, products from someplace and You know, you're like, ah, this is good. I'll put it here.
1: Yeah, you don't know what's in the firmware.
0: But the point where you need to see here is you need to learn what's in the firmware. Exactly. You need to know where your cloud-hosted service provider is, is putting your data. You need to understand what kind of security practices the companies you contract with have in place. For example, the connected... Teddy Bear hack from a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. part of the issue there was that the toy company had contracted with an outside vendor to set up their app which relied on a like a MongoDB database that had a like 14 month old security flaw associated with it
1: right you can't
0: mm-hmm. you can't do like cheap tech here, guys.
1: It goes back to what we said many times. If you're going to deliver a product or service, you have to evaluate it from a security perspective from beginning to end and everywhere in between. That means every server it touches, every network part it uses, cameras, any hardware, the databases, etc. it all has to be secured and evaluated.
0: And now we're going to add another layer into that because Kevin found some crazy crazy research that puts the physical in the cyber physical security aspect.
1: Yeah, I I never thought of this, but it totally makes sense. Um, So the University of Michigan uh, put out research, yes, it is University of Michigan. They put out research earlier this week that shows that how you can use sound frequencies to kind of, I don't want to say hack, but I'll say, yeah, trick Accelerometers that are in common devices that we use every day, such as watches, fitness trackers, smartphones, et cetera. And it makes sense when you think about it because accelerometers, I mean, they're measuring movement and sound waves do have movement. <laughs> yeah. So, so what these folks did was they actually, just to prove it, they used a $5 speaker and injected thousands of fictitious steps into a Fitbit just by playing. You know a particular sound frequency. They also used um, a music file on a smartphone's own speaker to pilot a toy remote control car, and they they took a different music file and got the word walnut spelled on a graph on a Samsung Galaxy S5 because of its accelerometer. I just never thought of it, but sound waves are you know vibrating things, and 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 these MEMS, uh, these accelerometers can be affected by them.
0: Basically, a MEM is a type of semiconductor that has the digital component Mm -hmm. and the physical world component. So the accelerometer is usually like tiny little springs that bobble up and down, and the digital component translates the movement of those springs into footsteps or whatever whatever algorithm the company has put on there. Mm -hmm. And so here, it's just the sound waves make the springs vibrate, and then boom. What's crazy is if you know the types of algorithms used, you could do something like Fake a seizure across, you know, a wide number of the population, for example, who has these accelerometers if they've got devices that track falls, right? You Mm -hmm. can do all kinds of – I mean, you might be like, why why would that matter? But then you tie up emergency resources someplace. Right. I don't know. I don't think like someone practicing world domination very often, but if I did (laughs) – But if I did. (laughs) This would be really interesting. (laughs) So I guess that's that other layer that – Now we have to think about that too, you guys.
1: Ah! And and I don't know from a security standpoint how you would protect against that. You know, that's that's going to be challenging.
0: It is. Okay. So that was a little bit of terror for our (laughs) IoT.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How about some happy news? Do we have any happy news today? (laughs) I have
0: something sort of happy. I was at South by Southwest and I didn't do a whole lot of stuff there because it was really rainy and cold and terrible weather. But I did. Talk to I went to this design workshop for IoT devices and I discovered the IoT design manifesto. And this can hmm. be found and I'll link to it. It's IoTmanifesto.org. And it was basically in this workshop, we actually built a connected we didn't build a connected product. We designed a connected product. And the one thing I noticed, there are 10 things to think about with this IoT design manifesto. A lot of them deal with like privacy of data, there's a security element. There is the parties. So we make the parties associated with an IoT product explicit, which means like if you're sending your data to someplace else, and they're using it, you tell the user. And all of these are awesome. But what I didn't see is anything about business models. And I thought that was really kind of a huge oversight, because I think I say this all the time. So you guys might be sick of it. But we don't know how without a business model, you can't allocate the resources you need to continuously secure something, or you can't tell customers that their device isn't going to die in, you know, a few Mm. weeks. So I'm going to link to it. So you guys see it because I think it is a great start.
1: So are you suggesting maybe they need to add something that says, you know, if you're providing a device or service, you promise to go open source if you go under?
0: Oh that's a good idea. Yeah, I don't know how to think about that. Like if you're designing a business model, you probably also want to think about like if your business model is selling data, maybe you have to add a clause about how you deal with the data when you sell it, for example. Mm-hmm. Or if you shut down. If,
1: let's let's hope you don't, but if you do, put yeah.
0: put the data in escrow or put the source code in escrow for your device.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: I don't know. I just thought, you know, it's worth thinking. The nice thing is they, they are a quote unquote living document. So if you guys think it's worth doing, you can actually submit thoughts and ideas to these people and maybe it will get incorporated. Nice. So that was that. Other news. Beta, which is my favorite store. They don't pay me to say that. I just like stores that have lots of gadgets. <laughs> uh, they're going to open a San Francisco location and an Austin location. They already have a Seattle, a Santa Monica, and a Palo Alto location. But they're coming to my state, you guys. It's going nice. to be like 10 minutes from my house.
1: Very and nice. Inside. And it turns out they're already in Seattle, you said. Mm-hmm. And I am going out to Seattle in June to run the Rock and Roll Marathon with uh, my other podcasting buddy from my Mobile Tech Roundup show just to get him through the whole – his first marathon. And I think I will have time to go visit.
0: Excellent. Nice. Yes, because it is – and each store stocks different devices, I should say. So Okay. You could, you could go to one in one place and see certain devices and then go to mm-hmm. another in another place and see totally different devices. Nice. And the – Cool thing is, they don't actually care if you buy it there or not. Their goal, the companies pay to be in the store, and it's basically an additional marketing tool for these connected product mm-hmm. companies. Or right, yeah. You know, go try out a VR headset or something. All right, let's see. We also have everything, which doesn't have any vowels in it except for at the beginning. This is. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I'm like, you're not going to find this company if you search for it, but it's everything with. No vowels in it except for that first E. It's an IOT platform based out of Europe and it has gotten 24.8 million in series B funding. This is an enterprise kind of corporate platform, but it's got deals with like Avery Denison, which is a big packaging company, mm-hmm. um, Crown Holdings and Westrock. So these are all big packaging companies and what they do is make smart packaging. They provide the platform for these guys to put you know nfc or rfid tags on stuff for shipment monitoring mm-hmm. so monitoring things during transport its platform is used to monitor things like where devices in the shipment chain it gives consumers product information if they want it and mm-hmm. it also sends data back to the maker of the product that says hey this person interacted with the label this way
1: like when I buy my um Liverpool football club jerseys, there's an authenticity thing on it, and I can scan that and register it. So it sounds like that's one of the things they could theoretically do.
0: Yes. So got it. I actually had a conversation with another company called Thin Film. This actually it was last week, and mm-hmm. there's some really cool stuff happening in the packaging world, and I think I'll probably be writing about it in my newsletter soon. So. You can stay tuned for that. It feels like something we probably shouldn't talk about too much here because it's pretty, it's a little nerdy and not everybody's excited about the future of packaging. Ah, (laughs) I don't know. You will be. Let me just leave it at that. You You will be. be. All right. Other news. Let's see. Oh, Roombas. Those robotic vacuum. I was going to call them creatures, those are robotic vacuum (laughs) creatures, but they're really just robotic vacuum robots, get an Echo integration. So, this is only the 900 series, which has a Wi-Fi connection, basically, in an app. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that soon you will be able to tell your Roomba, or ask the Echo to start your Roomba, which is pretty awesome. That's kind of cool. I have long wanted to say, fly, my pretties, fly! and have my Roomba go because I am a strange person who has a deep affection for the Wizard of Oz.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember seeing the Roombas flying around in the Wizard of Oz, but maybe in the sequel.
0: Yeah, they're I mean, they're like the (laughs) flying monkeys only they clean your house, right? Or attract poop everywhere, whichever, depending on your situation. (laughs) So Roomba has been really vocal about this. And I'm I'm excited about it. I don't know if it's actually going to happen, but Roomba spent a lot of time talking about how they can map rooms mm-hmm. with their not LiDAR, <laughs> with their sensors based software and the fact that it goes everywhere. So this is not a high tech version of this, but it is an economical thing. And if you already have a Roomba, it's great. And sharing that information back to other products in the home because of where the Roomba is, I'm not a hundred percent sure how useful that's going to be. I mean, the stuff my Roomba normally encounters isn't stuff that moves a whole lot.
1: Right, right. I'm thinking this could be, maybe you want to vacuum a very specific room and you don't, you know, maybe you don't want to pick up the Roomba, bring it in there, hit the start button, whatever. You can just tell it, you know, go vacuum the dining room because we're going to have guests coming over or something. Um, And it will learn what room is what room and, and therefore through voice control, you can, you can do that.
0: Yeah. And they're also saying, like, the Roomba could, since the Roomba knows what room is the kitchen, or eventually Mm -hmm. the Roomba could know what's the kitchen, it could convey that information to other devices, and then you could just say, turn on lights in the kitchen, and you wouldn't have to program it in your Echo
1: Ah, so today, I get it. So today, like when I, I have ki- lights in my kitchen, I have them specifically labeled as kitchen lights so that when I want to turn them on, I have to say that, but eliminate that naming or programming part in the setup because the information of kitchen would be found through the Roomba, perhaps.
0: Yes. Okay. I'm like, eh. eh,
1: we'll ain't, ain't anything to make life easier. It's, it's all good.
0: I'm, I'm a fan. All right. I feel like that's pretty good for this week. Okay. There wasn't a whole lot of news that I saw. There was a the Neo Smart Car debuted at South by Southwest, and it's pretty, but mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's it's far off, so meh. And we should mention this because we have a lot of people who like their Echoes. But AWS has AWS promotional credits for She Who Shall Not Be Named. Mm-hmm. So basically, they're saying it's free for Echo. To, and I'm just going to say instead of She Who Shall Not Be Named, I'm going to say Echo Developers. <laughs> So it is now free for echo developers to build and host most echo skills using AWS. And they're going to offer, you can apply to get an additional hundred dollar promotional credit each month hmm. that, you know, you incur as people use your skills. So as your skill, you know, what happens is it's free to develop. Usually it's free for like a small number of users, but if it gets really popular, suddenly you're like, Oh, now I'm paying, which is fine. Cause presumably that's good for you too. Mm-hmm. But. This way, you can apply and get an extra $100 a month from AWS. And I will nice. send, I will put the link to that so you can apply for that if you'd like. Um, and this is, I mean, this is smart.
1: They're letting you scale on the cheap or for free because what they're saying here is if your skill surpasses the AWS free usage tier, you may be eligible to continue receiving promotional credits. And I think to get past that free usage tier, it was uh, 1 million AWS Lambda requests in a given month and or up to 750 hours of the Amazon Elastic Cloud Compute or EC2 compute time. So if your skill really takes off, don't panic and think, oh, I'm going to have to pay a lot of money to continue scaling. It does not look like you will.
0: Exactly. You know, this makes sense. They want to get developers on board. There's increasing competition. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) And
0: if you have all the skills, I mean, because like if I've developed an Echo skill, it will work across any hardware that's also using that platform, which is actually really cool because a lot of other companies are building devices that have the Echo skills.
1: Yeah. We should make an Echo skill that so you can just say her name and say, play the latest IoT podcast.
0: So you can actually do that. You can play that latest IoT No, No,
1: podcast. you could actually do that.
0: Yeah, sorry, one one can ask the Echo to play the Internet of Things podcast, and it will because we are on TuneIn. Yes. Uh, but I have been thinking about doing like a recipe of the day skill, which I think would be kind of fun. Or maybe it's recipe of the week. I don't – I am like that's a lot of recipes to come up with, guys. So I just haven't gotten to the point where I'm like, okay, I'm ready to do an Echo skill. But I'm talking to the Amazon team tomorrow, so we'll see what happens. done dun, dun. dun. Love it. I have a complaint. So Lutron and SmartThings announced their integration between the two platforms where you could control your Lutron lights with the SmartThings, the Samsung SmartThings platform. Mm -hmm. I was super excited because, because you've got
2: lots uh, of Lutron.
0: I do. I was like, because Lutron is awesome and Samsung actually works with the Google Home and currently the Wink doesn't. So I was like, oh yeah, now I can Mm -hmm. control more stuff from the Google Home. Well, I haven't gotten it to work. So last week I told you guys that for some reason I was having a glitchy issue and that I'd reached out to SmartThings. Well, SmartThings was really nice. They got in touch with me. They deleted my account on SmartThings so I could restart from scratch, Mm -hmm. but that did not solve the issue. What was happening Mm -hmm. is I could connect my Lutron bridge to the SmartThings app, but when it went to discover my devices, Mm -hmm. it didn't work. I kept getting an error message, the same error message every time. So Hmm. I sent that to them and they at first was like, okay, we deleted your account. Try again. So I did because sometimes that works. It didn't in this case. And then they, they looked further and they said, well, we don't see your Lutron bridge is connecting to the server. It doesn't look like it's actually connecting out to the internet at large, but that's not true. I,
1: (laughs) that's easy to test.
0: I was like, I turned off the Wi Fi on my phone and then I opened my Lutron app and which is connected to my Lutron bridge. And then I turned my lights off and on and they worked. So mm-hmm. that felt like nope, it is connected. So Correct. for some reason, Smart Things doesn't see my Lutron bridge. And I've now reached out to Lutron mm-hmm. and Maybe next week, because I really just want to test this integration for you guys yeah. and say, Hey, it's awesome, or there's a big delay because it's cloud to cloud. So if anyone has experienced this issue and knows how to solve it, please let me know. Or if you've experienced the integration and you love it, that's also a good thing to let me know. Mm-hmm. Cause then I can tell, I can tell all of our listeners that, Hey guys, it's just me and it might just <laughs> be me. Maybe. So, I mean, I, I have, know. I have a lot of stuff. I always, I always feel bad when I test this stuff and it doesn't work. Cause I'm like,
1: there, there are more variables in your environment than most people's. I will, I will grant you that, but uh, I don't really see why this would be an issue on yeah. this case anyway.
0: It feels like somewhere, somewhere there's something getting lost in the back end. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. All right, Kevin, I feel like we've done a great show. We should probably move on to our guest, Phoebe Wilkinson who is a partner at Hogan Lovells and we are going to be talking about lawsuits and the internet of things. So, stay tuned for that. And now, a message from our sponsor. Hey everyone, this is Stacy and we are taking a break in the podcast for a message from this week's sponsor. This week's sponsor is Samsung Arctic. And today, we're going to learn about smart lighting and building automation from Uwe Thomas. Let's just get started by telling me what Samsung is doing in smart lighting.
2: What we're doing is to connect different lighting devices that exist in silos today in the cloud. Imagine a building where you have sensors, you have light switches, you have light fixes, luminaires. They're from different manufacturers They operate on different connectivity protocols and they do not talk to one another. So what we do is we have a platform that allows to connect all these devices in the cloud and interoperate with one another.
0: And smart lighting is part of a bigger picture, actually, building automation. Why are people investing in building automation?
2: That's right. Lighting is part of uh, building automation. In a building, you have traditionally HVAC systems, you have security systems, you have data center, and of course, the lighting system, all operating in silos today. And by connecting these different disciplines, you can optimize the energy use in buildings. With that, you can also connect devices remotely and operate your buildings from any place in the world from your smartphone.
0: How do you bring this together using Arctic?
2: In in Arctic Cloud, it brings all these different devices together such that third-party devices can interoperate with one another in one place securely with easy onboarding. It's the one place that brings hardware, software, third-party devices and services together so that they can truly interoperate, which is the true meaning of the Internet of Things.
0: Now that I've taken my building automation systems all through Samsung Arctic, what kind of ROI can I expect?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So the ROI can be brought down to half a year, maybe one and a half years, which is significantly better than the four years you have with today's traditional building management system. Consider that Traditional building management systems, you pay a minimum of $2.50 per square foot, sometimes up to $7 per square foot. And with modern IoT-based building management system, you can bring this down to about $0.75 per square foot. That's about five times less than that of uh, the traditional building management systems.
0: And this week, Samsung Arctic has launched a new ebook on connected lighting. It's called IoT Connected Commercial Lighting Solutions Seven Questions for Achieving Optimal Value. It's an insightful look on what it takes to connect your lighting, and you can find it at www.artic.io slash connected lighting. Remember, that's www.artik.io/slash connected lighting. Go download it today hey everyone welcome back to the internet of things podcast this is your host stacy Higginbothel. and today i have a wonderful guest for you guys this is phoebe wilkinson who is a partner at hogan Lovells. and phoebe why don't you tell us what your specialty is
3: Thanks, Stacy. I'm just really pleased to be doing this podcast with you. My area of specialty is that I represent manufacturers of products in court litigation or perhaps sometimes in arbitrations with a heavy focus on class actions as they're litigated here in the U.S. courts. Basically, she tells people
0: how to make things that won't get them sued. Is that a good summation?
3: I do. I try to make sure they do not get sued working with people, you know, as they bring products to market, but also to the degree the inevitable happens and they they do get sued. I'm routinely in there defending them and trying to make sure classes never get certified against my clients.
0: Exactly. So I thought it would be really awesome to have you come on the show to talk about the Internet of Things because it feels like a really ripe area for, gosh, class actions lawsuits. I I see a lot of people talking about how the government is not regulating this area. So maybe it will be regulated in the courts. And I would love to just get your sense on big picture. What role do you think the courts are going to play in kind of making the Internet of Things a little bit maybe more secure? Maybe, I don't know, more consumer friendly?
3: You know, given that these devices are so new and regulations always sort of lag a little bit behind technology and advancement, that you often find that the courts, when they're faced with lawsuits, often become the first area where, where policy or laws or how a manufacturer needs to operate in terms of thinking about the risks of operating in the space that courts play a pretty big role in shaping how we all operate before maybe regulators and legislators catch up.
0: Got it. So when we talked earlier, you actually gave me this awesome history of class action lawsuits. And at first I was like, why are we doing this? But as you explained to me, this actually helps understand what's a class action lawsuit and what isn't. So I would love for you to kind of explain that to our audience.
3: Sure. So the class action mechanism and the tool really came about, I want to say, in the 70s. And it came about for a very logical reason. So you had an airplane that unfortunately perhaps crashed or maybe a skywalk fell. Before they had the class action rule and the procedure, every person who was involved in the crash or the skywalk that fell, they'd have to sue the manufacturer or any of the defendants one by one. And what someone came up with was, you know what, I shouldn't really have to prove that the engine was defective or that there was a problem or there was a liability 230 times. I should really only have to do it once because if we know the person was on the plane, there's really going to be no question as to causation. The plane went down, liability was determined to be the fault of X, Y, or Z, And then everybody on the plane should get the benefit of all that work and not have to do it 230 times in individual lawsuits. That made a lot of sense. What's happened, however, since that time is that lawyers and and, and even technology and products have sort of looked to that tool and they said, well, wait a minute, maybe I can use that tool for other lawsuits. And at one stage, they were used against the tobacco industry, against the pharma industry. The law developed to say, no, there's really too many individual issues there. So we can't really use it for those personal injury type cases. But then the next advancement was plaintiffs' lawyers or litigants who said, well, but I have a deceptive trade practice or a deceptive thing that a company did in connection with how they advertised a product or whether they made it safe and reasonable for use. And the class action tool is actually really the right tool to use in terms of an action that goes after what those activities were. So, for example, do you secure your data? How do you use your data? What have you told people? And that is sort of, I think, the new frontier for manufacturers or people who are in the, in the world of Internet of Things. I think they really need to think about that because it does present a challenge going forward. But one, I think that they can at least think about how to mitigate some of that risk.
0: That was really helpful. So then the challenges become things like, So deceptive trade practice, that's things like I'm saying my device does something that it may not, or maybe I'm overstating its capabilities. Could it also tie into devices that a consumer might have an assumption that they'll be around a while, but then they get bricked or turned off? And this is actually happening a lot in the internet of things with devices that, you know, maybe the company goes out of business and they're not going to support it, or maybe the company gets acquired and the new company isn't going to support it. So- I'm really trying to figure out what cases might come up for class action status.
3: I think there's a variety of them, and I think you've identified uh, a number. But think about a very sort of straightforward one. And and we've actually seen this play out recently with respect to, to a manufacturer of a smart device. Smart devices collect a lot of data, and If the manufacturer is going to do anything with that data, so for example, maybe they'd like to sell the data to companies that track advertising or track audience measurement or track the success of advertising. If the manufacturer is not disclosed to the purchasers of the smart device, hey, I'm going to be collecting the data and you can opt out if you'd like, but also I may use that data. That omission Not telling a consumer about what you're doing with respect to their privacy, their viewing history, whatever it is that the smart device is tracking, not telling them actually is actionable in this country. Because every state, all 50 states, pretty much have what they call a Deceptive Trade Practices Act. All of them, in essence, say manufacturers or sellers of products cannot engage in deceptive trade practices, which includes advertising what you say about a product if it turns out not to be true, or what you don't say about a product. And so in that sense, that's my omission example. And the danger of these, these statutes and the way they can be used very aggressively is that most states allow you to bring a class action using that statute. There's a few that don't. But they carry trouble damages often. They carry the right... For the manufacturer to have to pay attorney's fees back to the plaintiffs Mm -hmm. and in some instances provide for punitive damages. So the stakes are very, very high and the actions you take as a manufacturer can very much be implicated because if you say something but you don't say everything, or if you say something but you don't say it completely truthfully, there's a lot that can be done with attorneys who say that is a deceptive trade practice. It also, frankly, can come up with data security. So if you don't secure the data, and you have a big breach, that's not going to be a deceptive trade practices act per se. But there there can be class actions that are lodged against you for failing to secure the data that you've collected in a way that is reasonable in terms of your obligations to secure that data.
0: Okay, so we've got data security, we've got this idea of deceptive trade practices. Are there other issues that Might be risky for manufacturers of connected devices?
3: Those are the primary ones. If you're going to collect data, you have to secure it. But if you're going to collect data or if you're going to do anything with respect to the information that you obtain from your consumers connected to smart devices, you really need to make disclosures. I guess there is one other risk, and it's not specific to, say, a cause of action, but the reality is that data is, it's not expensive to hold. We know that these days, right? It's pretty actually cheap to hold data in a cloud. But if you're involved in a litigation, and then you have to produce the data through the court process, that can be an exceptionally expensive proposition. And so the other thing I think companies need to think about if they are going to collect data is, do we really need to hold on to it for any particular period of time In legal parlance, we call it a document retention policy or a data preservation policy, where you sort of decide, you know what, we really don't need to keep anything for longer than X years.
0: Let's go a little crazy here, because what you're talking about with data retention becomes really interesting when we think about artificial intelligence and how people are using data collected off to train AI models. And so that becomes really interesting because the data is used to create basically a model that says like, this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a whatever for like a camera, for example. And then that algorithm lives on for forever. And then it gets gradually retrained with more data. So if I'm thinking about like data retention, do I need to keep the data that becomes part of an algorithm, especially as algorithms start making things happen? So actuating things, I may not get a notification on my security camera, if it thinks it's a dog. Um, and maybe someone breaks into my house because of that and I'm I'm out money or maybe this is a flaw in their their product. I don't know. I'm kind of I feel like it's a little far out there, but then I'm also like, eh, it may not be.
3: I don't think there's anything that's far out there in, in this evolving world of smart data, smart technology. And I, I think you've identified a lot of things that people need to think about. In terms of the retention, there's no question that if the algorithms that you have or any of the technology that you have that operates the device, you're going to want to keep that, right? Because you're going to want to make sure that you have the ability to always create the history of of how we got there and keep it updated. But there may be other data that you decide is not necessary to maintain in terms of the operation of the business or or the operation of what your business is doing or what you're looking at. And so it's that data that I was suggesting that there there can be instances where companies will not want to keep that data because it's expensive down the road if there's ever any sort of a dispute to have to produce it. But you're right. There are there're going to be categories of data that you're going to want to hold on to for the viability and for the progression of the business. Okay, well, that makes
0: sense. So maybe they don't need to keep that it's my cat, but they should probably keep the record that it's a cat. That is good. (laughs) So let's think about disclosures, because you've mentioned this as a kind of risky area for companies. I'm very curious, because I buy a lot of connected devices, and I click through a lot of terms of service agreements, where a lot of these devices will say, hey, we're going to sell your data to third parties, or maybe they're going to use the data to make algorithms. And are those enough? I feel like when I'm clicking through a terms of service on a four-inch screen on my oven, or maybe it's the two-inch screen on my thermostat, I'm like, is it really reasonable that I read a 40-page EULA on that particular device? I don't know. So any, any thoughts there?
3: I think if you want to be really prudent and manage your risk, you consider identifying at the top of those documents or somewhere prominent right where an end user is starting to use it, that the 30-page or the 40-page contains the following types of disclosures and identify them by category and say, you have the opportunity if you'd like to opt out. And if you do want to see more about this right away, to create that link that maybe they can go there right away. I'm a defense lawyer, and I tell my clients all the time, it is always safer when you start out to anticipate the worst and work backwards. And so if you think about ways in terms of disclosures that you make, the especially if you are going to use the data, sell the data, or you want to do something with the data that you capture from a person's smart device, I think it is prudent to be pretty clear about that up front. And if you give them the opt-out right and they don't, at least if there's ever a problem down the road, you can say if you're faced with some sort of a regulatory inquiry or a lawsuit, hey, I was very upfront early on as to what this document contained. I disclosed it and I gave them an easy way to opt out and they chose not to. It does depend on the type of disclosure and probably the type of device. So your thermostat is probably not collecting what people would consider to be as as private data as say your television viewing or you know we have seen even recently there was some case involving data involving sex toys so there are there's a whole spectrum of privacy in terms of what a particular device might capture that probably will also dictate the degree to which you should make your disclosures very prominent. Does that make sense?
0: It does. So my sex toys, okay. they should probably be saying, we are collecting this information, and we will share it. Also with probably my television or my broadband viewing history. But maybe my thermostat, I'm like, maybe, maybe the font's slightly smaller. I don't know. Now, on the idea of opt-outs... This has always kind of irked me because I usually read these things and then I'm like, and to opt out, you can not use our software or our device. And in many ways, that feels eminently reasonable, especially when I'm, you know, buying what is essentially a luxury thermostat, for example. But as we kind of put technology in more places, it feels very strange. Like if I buy a car, for example... When I sign into the app for the first time after I've taken possession of the car, that's probably not the best time to tell me I can opt out by not using the device. So I'm very curious, like, do you think we'll see a shift in maybe when we're offered an opt-out or how those might work?
3: You raise a good point. And and I think we probably will. And I say that because in other areas where we have faced opt-out questions, we have seen the law evolved to a place where you have to make it pretty easy for the consumer to opt out. So specifically, I'm referring to mandatory arbitration, for example. The law has developed over the years where a mandatory arbitration clause may have been buried somewhere in a warranty document or in a manual. And then, you know, courts said, no, you've got to be prominent about it. And what we saw was then manufacturers said, okay, we'll make the disclosure of the arbitration clause more prominent, but we're going to put conditions on it and say, if you return it to us, then you can opt out. And by the way, there's a restocking fee. And court said, no, you really can't put a burden on the consumer if they want to opt out. And so the manufacturers who have been the most successful getting arbitration clauses to be deemed valid are the ones who have said very prominently, There is an arbitration clause in this document, and if you would like to opt out, please call the following number within 30 days of purchase. And so they've made it easy for the consumer. They've made a reasonable amount of time, 30 days, and courts have said, you know what, that is appropriate, and if someone does not opt out by making a phone call in 30 days, then yes, we are going to enforce the arbitration clause. So I can see something like that happening with smart devices, where if it's litigated, I suspect that the manufacturers who make it easy for someone to opt out are the ones who will see the greatest success in having courts or regulators say, that was a reasonable step, they didn't do so, and so you were free to use the data.
0: Thank you. I'm glad that that might happen, because I've been thinking a lot about that. And I'm like, I almost never give something up. But let's tackle one more issue that I think is really, I think it's really big, but we'll see what you say. A lot of these devices, we're getting to a point where they're not just tracking data and notifying us, they're actually taking action on our behalf. So I'm thinking of things like, when I leave, I program my door locks to lock behind me. And this gets really interesting because like insurance companies are paying for people to put, you know, connected smoke alarms and things in their house. So when you have a connected device that's controlling the real world, does that introduce new levels of, I guess, caution or maybe fiduciary duties? I, I don't know the legal terms for these things, but as a manufacturer, what should you be thinking about when you're actuating things?
3: It's a great question. And it's it's one that is undeveloped yet in our legal system. But I do think that to the degree that say it doesn't work, right? Your house doesn't lock for whatever reason or it becomes unlocked for some reason after it was locked for a few hours and you were away and something happens or for some reason the device doesn't give the warnings it's supposed to. Say it's a a thermostat that actually operates also as some sort of a security or a fire hazard. I think there certainly is risk that a manufacturer will face a lawsuit in that regard for basically the product didn't work, right? Or there was a malfunction. And and it'll go then to was it designed appropriately? Or if something happened remotely that the company somehow, that something happened at the company that caused the device to turn off or to unlock, what were the safeguards that were used at the company to make sure that that didn't happen? Did they have warnings? Had it happened before? And there you get into very straightforward product liability law. I think you're unlikely in that instance to see a real class action risk because those are one-off events. Is it a risk of liability for manufacturers? Sure because you know now they're not just in think about the old days they didn't just sell the product and they were they were done with it they're they're actively now interacting with the product even while you use it to the degree that it's connected and to the manufacturer and that things are happening or not happening right so it's created a relationship that's almost day to day Goes beyond the point of sale with the the old way that devices were sold, so I do think it it's going to be interesting to see how the law develops in that regard, but I don't see that lending itself to class action treatment or risk as much as I do the the security of the actual data disclosures, et cetera
0: got it that's that's over the large large pool of people versus individual action, although I can imagine if my connected pet feeder, you know, stopped working and killed a whole bunch of cats. That might be interesting and terrible. I should say terrible. Okay. Well, Phoebe, I feel like I have learned a lot. Are there any other topics that you're like, Stacy, just for all the people making smart devices out here, you should also think about this.
3: I think the big ones are... We have sort of touched on them indirectly, but just assume as you go down the road of new technology and advancement and the more connected you're becoming to people that you're nowhere near, I do think, think about work Work from the back. What are the risks? What, what are the risks if something goes wrong? What are the risks of what we're doing? And work backwards from, would anybody see this as a infringement of some sort that would cause a whole bunch of people to be able to, in one fell swoop, say that we had done something wrong. And I think working backwards like that is just a great risk management technique. And I think it's important to always think about risk mitigation and risk management at the same time that you're evolving and developing technology, because the companies I've always seen get in trouble are the ones that things get too big too fast and sort of the infrastructure and the thought process about how to manage risk and how to mitigate risk doesn't keep up with the amazing ideas and the amazing advancements in technology. And that imbalance can just create a lot of problems down the road. It only takes one you know, bad class action or one really bad regulatory fine that not only hits Your bottom line in terms of whatever you have to pay. But it's hugely disruptive to the company to go through that kind of litigation or regulatory oversight or regulatory investigation. And also you take a hit in the media. And and all of those things I really think can be mitigated by a little bit of thought ahead of time.
0: All right. So amid all your techno razzle dazzle cheerleaders in your smart home company, you should also hire a few Debbie Downers to be like, but what if the worst happens? Exactly.
3: They're never popular, but you love them down the road when you realize, oh, thank God we put that clause in there the way that we did. There you go. Oh.
0: All right, Phoebe, thank you so much for coming on the show this week.
3: Well, it's been an absolute
0: pleasure for me, and thank you. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to know more about the Internet of Things, please sign up for my newsletter, Stacy Knows Things at StacyonioT.com. on IOT.com. See you next week.